0: Dr. Christian Northrup would tell this story about her mother, and when her mother didn't want to cook in the afternoon, she would chop up a bunch of onions and put them in a frying pan so that when her father came home from work, he would yell out to Christian's mother, wow, something smells really good. Little did he know there was no dinner that evening, but she had tricked him for the time as we know scent is such a powerful sense that we ha- or smell is such a powerful sense that we have we think about a perfume that we wear or that our mother's wore or our grandmother's and immediately our minds are cast back to that interaction we had with them or smells of cooking that would have permeated Martha and Mary's houses that permeated our own growing up and still do. Those are things that we carry with us. I imagine that that day, it was a combination of a celebration for what had been accomplished, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, but also there was some fear because This was not something that was an everyday occurrence. And Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself knew that he was on the wrong side of the authorities and that they decided to kill him and kill Lazarus as well. It's a horrifying story, one that we don't often think about, good and bad happening in the same thing. This story has everything in it. It has intrigue and it has faithfulness. It also has faithlessness when we think about Judas. We think of the faithfulness of Mary and Martha that have worked so hard to be good hosts for Jesus. It also has the idea of abandonment because Judas, at that point, scholars have said, has had the devil put inside him, not just on Maundy Thursday, as we've come to believe, but beforehand, and if we think about it logically, he would have been plotting for weeks ahead of time about what he was going to do with Jesus and how he was, and his ministry, and how he was becoming so disgruntled by the way jesus was conducting himself sitting at table with sinners and prostitutes not something that we often think of those we want to emulate doing the other piece of it is is that jesus uses this moment to teach leave her alone i i imagine that Jesus has just about had it with Judas. All of these weeks of murmuring about him behind his back and that Jesus, I'm sure, was aware that Judas was stealing from the common purse. We know that he was always a wise, discerning, seeing individual. So this final straw that that Judas is calling him out on. It's just a little bit more than Jesus is willing to take on. But the other piece of it is that he is angry with Judas because Judas is criticizing Mary's extravagance. Her love of Jesus and what she's done for her and her family has caused her to want to give Jesus more than just a welcome dinner. She wants to tell him how much she loves him and how much she cares for him. This story appears in all the Gospels, so we are under the impression that it it is a true story. The Jesus Seminar says the more a story appears in the Gospels, the more we can be sure that it actually took place. But there's a twist on each little Gospel reading. And Mark and Matthew, I lost my place, sorry. The the disciples rebuke Mary, and in turn, Jesus rebukes them. In Luke, Jesus rebukes Simon, who's the host of the dinner in this version of the story. Because Simon, he says, did not give him a bowl to wash his feet or to freshen up after walking to Simon's house for dinner. And here Mary had come and anointed his feet with this perfume, and then wiped him clean with her hair. And John, we know that Mary breaks open the nard and anoints Jesus. Now, we don't know where the nard came from. We know it is expensive. I read something this week that said that perhaps it was left over from when they were expecting to bury Lazarus. And, of course, that didn't happen. But what do we learn from this story? Jesus goes on to rebuke the disciples and rebuke Judas. And he says those famous words, the poor you will always have with you. And that sometimes gives people a license to say, well, I don't really need to help anyone because you know the poor we're always going to have with us so what is my giving to charity what is my being a good steward of the church's resources going to do in the long run the piece that has been left out of this reading is that in Deuteronomy 15 it is commanded the poor you will always have with you They will never disappear from the earth. And this is God, Moses, saying this to the Israelites. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelite, to the needy among you. So this is a command from the Old Testament that Jesus would have been so familiar with, and so would his followers. It's not something that Jesus thought up on his own although it is a good commandment. But it's the call to live extravagantly and to live generously. To not worry about what we don't have when we have so much. It is easy to say, I can't give because I have bills to pay. And Lord knows we should all pay our bills. But what I've always found is when I'm looking for more money to give to something I believe in, the money appears. I don't know how. I'm not saying that God has rained it down on me. But I managed to find the money because it's something I believe in. And I have to think that is what Jesus is telling us. If caring for the poor and the sick and the infirm is important to you, disciples, you will find a way to fund this ministry of mine. And once I'm gone, you will continue to fund this ministry. This is just the beginning of everything that Jesus came to earth for. The beginning of a new way of living, and we know that in the book of Acts, they shared out what they had equally and there was enough to go around just as in the feeding of the 5,000. Once people were able to open up their purses and their baskets of food, there was enough to go around with the manna from heaven that came down. They had baskets to gather up every day. We never think about what we do have. Many of us think about, and I include myself in this, what I don't have. But when I do that, I end up walking around with a clenched fist, instead of what Deuteronomy calls to have an open hand. This week, in, as we begin to think about Holy Week, who are you in this story? It's something that I've thought about. Are you one of the disciples reclining next to Jesus? Are you Mary and Martha making sure that everyone has what they need? I don't see many Judases amongst us here today, so that's a good thing. But there are times when I have to admit, sometimes I can be a Judas. I can be one that loves idle gossip and to drop people into it. I don't do it very often. but. I know that Judas is just a part of all of our personalities, whether we want to admit it or not. And sometimes we're going to be Peter and deny things. This story, has every, as I said, has every human emotion, tragedy, love, sadness, intrigue. And for anyone who ever tells you the Bible is boring, just pull out this story. <laughs> And explain all the nuances to them because it's anything but boring. It's fascinating and John layers all of the different themes and feelings and human emotion. As we prepare for Holy Week and prepare our hearts and minds, what do you want to see your Holy Week look like? How do you want it to feel? What do you want it to smell like? Can you feel the dirt between your toes as you walk along the roads to Jerusalem? Can you smell the animals and the people and the foods cooking in the marketplace? Can you hear the voices of children, of adults, of cattle and dogs? It's a human story, just like all the stories that mean so much to us this week are. It's embracing it and becoming a part of it, and wanting to really, truly be in the moment. So try doing that. It's called Ignatian Spirituality. And it, after you are able to put yourself in the story, the stories are alive, and they mean so much more than they're, when we take them at face value. Amen.